0: Okay, 2nd Peter chapter 2 and we are picking up this week in verse 4, verse 4 and I'm afraid it may well be another single verse as we press through but um, there is a lot to unpack and one of the things that I'm constantly reminded of is that because I'm teaching quite a lot and I'm teaching certain things quite regularly, that I have to remember Peter's admonition just a little while earlier that he had no problem in repeating, repeating, repeating. And I feel like this last few weeks and this next few weeks I'm just going to be one of those fire and brimstone preachers preaching on judgment and false doctrine and hell and all these kind of things. And so be it, so be it. And I'm also aware that there's certain topics that I'm teaching quite regularly recently and of course many of you haven't been here for them and so I'm, I am uh, conscious to explain myself and I know for some of you who have been faithfully coming to, uh, to all the teachings then uh, there may be a fair bit of repetition, but for others there may be very new concepts. And so um, it is necessary to take our time over such things. So let's just remind ourselves context-wise where we're at, because that's going to be important moving forwards. He's been speaking of the um, astonishing value and worth and power of god's word properly handled at the end of chapter 1 and the assurance that we can have within it and then in contrast as we came into chapter 2 the but there at the beginning of chapter 2 and verse 1 contrasts from that Uh, prophetic word that contained within scripture the false teaching that is going to be arising amongst themselves and we'll be talking a little bit more about that as we go through today their teachings are destructive heresies destructive ways of thinking and they're going to bring upon themselves destruction We haven't spoken quite so much about that destruction, and that's because we've got it coming the next few weeks, including today. The key thing I want us to remember moving forwards is that in uh, verses 2 and 3, there was an allusion to Genesis chapter 3. And we have spoken about Genesis 3 multiple times in the last few weeks, and I just need to remind you as we move forwards, because it's crucial... That when he talks about the false uh, teachers um, um, leading with sensuality and greed, that that is a link to the Garden of Eden and Eve seeing that the fruit was pleasant to see, looked good to eat, and that it contained the promise of knowledge and understanding that she did not have. And there was sensuality and greed that were the, um, the driving factors in the original sin. And Peter is making the link here that these factors, as we made the link last time, that these factors are part and parcel of the continuing false doctrines that are being peddled even to this day. And verse 3 ended with this statement their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep now let us pick up again at that point we rushed that somewhat last time and that will lead us into a further description of the destruction in the following verses and we'll overview quite a few verses ahead and then come back to verse 4 okay it is clear from verse 3 that there is some that might say some that are perhaps thinking that their potential condemnation is idle and that their destruction is somehow asleep and and perhaps by implication that that destruction is not coming you imagine popping over to have a cup of tea As us Brits are prone to do you know you'll know those who've been to our house the first thing that happens is the kettle goes on and we offer you a cup of tea you're on British soil that's how things go and so if you pop over for a cup of tea to your neighborhood, if you happen to live in it, let's you know, pick on the obvious one, for example, um, although one of many, you know, if you lived in Houston and you popped round for a cup of tea with your neighbor, Joel Osteen, and you put the kettle on, as you do, and you had a little chat with Joel, he said, Joel, I wanna, I wanna just talk to you clearly today, pal, buddy, um, neighbor, um, the stuff you're teaching, not so good, gospel of health wealth and prosperity your best life now all of that do I need to warn you There's destruction that is coming there is a sureness of judgment that awaits you are you not scared do you not see the fruit of your teaching and the fruit of your ways and he will turn around look at the million-dollar paintings on his wall look through the picture of him and Victoria on stained glass in their house I'm I'm guessing that but maybe the stained-glass window or something like that and then look looking looking at all the the trappings of of fame and fortune and then wonder how long I'm gonna be here and have a glance at the $50,000 Rolex to check the time and say you know what I feel this is working out okay right now and, and the reality is is that for most false teachers the fruit is very sweet the sensuality and their greed is being satisfied and they are getting what they want And quite frankly, many of these teachers are simply saying, if you speak it and declare it and believe it, you can have it. And they could be doing that on the secular circuit, like the Tony Robbins of the world. And they'd be paying millions in tax every year. But they can throw in the word Jesus every five words and it's all tax free as well. It's working out fine. And so it's easy. For them to be distracted from the potential of destruction they would say their own doctrine teaches we can see that what we're doing is good because God is blessing us for our faith that's what they're saying and the proof of the pudding is in the eating as they would say look at what I have you know if we Forget the practicalities that it's a, a pseudo spiritual um, pyramid scheme and they're sitting quite comfortably at the top. If we ignore the practicalities for right now, we, we've, we've got ourselves a situation where there are those who are teaching and doing false things and everything seems to be going well for them. The Apostle Paul said to his protege Timothy that if you desire, to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. That's your life now. That's your promise. That's your guarantee. Jesus says if you want to come after me, then deny yourself, deny your desires for sensuality, d- your desires for greed, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And the path of the cross, the path to death, the path to to mocking and humiliation and scourging, a path that went through the Garden of Gethsemane is a path that I believe we, we know and we can see clearly in Scripture. That's That's the Christian life. And, and though we might pick on these false teachers as extreme examples, I want us to understand this that for our friends and for our families and for our co workers and for everybody else, why would they fear? Why would they be concerned about potential judgment when everything's going quite well? Life's fine, I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm living in a nice house, I'm having a nice glass of wine. I'm not sitting by the pool, perhaps, or you know, I've got a job, or this and that, and these various things are going on in their lives. And it's why would judgment be something that they would think about or consider? And this is why, at a time like now, that when the media is, is crying, death is imminent, death is imminent, death is imminent. Death is imminent! that you suddenly see all these comfortable people who really aren't worried about death and judgment suddenly become astonishingly fearful of both death and potentially judgment. And so we we find ourselves in a time when there are cracks and people are exposing people's hearts and their fear and what have you. But, but nonetheless, for the bulk of time, people just don't think about this stuff because why would you? If, if God decided tomorrow to bring down fire from heaven, you know, not on everybody, not on nice people like us, but you know, here and there, throw down a bit of fire on maybe, you know, a few places in Sacramento or you know, a few other, uh, you know, just, just, just a little bit of fire here and there God, just to let people know when you're not happy, that would be great. Because it's so easy for it to seem like judgement and destruction is asleep, that it's somehow idle. Peter is going to address exactly this. This is exactly where the book is going and this is the conclusion that he's working towards at the end of chapter 3. And it's a glorious conclusion and I can't wait to get there and I'm not going to go and blow my, my sermons for that period of time today. But I want us to know that that's where we're going with this whole understanding that it is the mercy and the patience and the long-suffering of God that means that these kind of things don't happen. That God is never late. He is never late in his mercy, he's never late in his judgment, he's never late in anything. That his timing is perfect. And though we might say, Lord, why not bring down your judgment now? I'm so thankful he doesn't. Because we've all had a period of life when God, if he brought down his righteous judgment on those who were his enemies, that we'd have been part of the kindling. But in his great mercy... He forsook that judgment for a time until He graciously led us to the cross to place our trust and our faith in the precious blood of His Son. Such is the mercy of our great God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so we don't want judgment swiftly. We don't want judgment swiftly at all. In fact quite honestly we don't want judgment at all we want mercy we don't want justice we want mercy we don't want to be punished for our sins we want the, the great richness of God's mercy cast upon us and so we end up with situations where God's merciful heart is seen in the allowance of sin sin continuing in our society, sin continuing in our world, and God just holding back and holding back his hand of judgment. And so that leads to the claim that this destruction, this condemnation, that it's not there, that it's not coming. You know, that, that and ultimately this way of thinking, as we'll see in chapter 3, would suggest that Jesus isn't coming back at all. And in fact, there are many within the Christian Church today who who believe that that so many of the the, the future prophecies of the Bible have already happened. Preterism is the name of such a doctrine: the idea that, that you know this so much has already occurred, and there is this denial of of uh, the judgment to come the day of the Lord to come and boy let me tell you the day of the Lord is coming and we'll talk about that in chapter 3 and so verse 3 is telling us and it's telling all the false teachers don't think that just because there's no judgment now don't think that because you have comfort now that everything is okay because you stand a breath away from hell And from destruction and from condemnation and then in verse 4 as we come to our verse for the day this point of verse 3 that I've emphasized again because it's our context this is this is what the four refers to it refers to the condemnation not being idle a destruction not being asleep and from verses 4 right the way through to um, verse 10, the first half of verse 10, is uh, is an argument of the fact that this condemnation will come. Or is there, rather, the condemnation, but the destruction will come. And, and let me read through for you, let me walk through with you this um This procedure. greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked for as the righteous man lived among them day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard and here's the conclusion then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Sodom and Gomorrah was a place of prosperity. It was a place of prosperity. That's why Lot went there. Abram and Lot are gonna go their separate ways. Lot shouldn't have been there in the first place, Abram was told to leave his father's family behind as he went, but he took Lot and so it caused conflict, they were both prosperous and doing well, and Lot said, looks greener over there, that's where I'm heading. So he went to the place of prosperity. In the midst of prosperity, he found great sin. Kind of like coming to California, isn't it? And he, he came and, and he found great sin in that place, in the midst of the prosperity. And for those who were in Sodom and Gomorrah, not only was there prosperity, not only was there a place where there was much richness in in physical terms, but there was an indulging of the passions of their hearts. There was an idea that they could do whatever they wanted. That love is love. That desires are desires. That nothing is wrong and, you know, we don't want to be held back by puritanical views. And as a result, it was quite a party place until fire came from heaven at the time of the flood, and we'll talk about more this this more about this in a moment there were two groups of people two groups of beings that were judged there was the humans on the earth and there were the angels in heaven from heaven heavenly angels we'll talk about this in a moment and that judgment was put off and was put off and was put off and was put off and it finally came. There are some who teach, and I'm perfectly open to this, that because we know from in Genesis that the earth was watered by mist in the Garden of Eden. Because the Bible speaks of a canopy of water above and water coming up from the deep, that the world, the time before the flood, the antediluvian world, if you want the technical term, was a very different world. And some would teach, and like I say, I'm open to it, that it's possible that it might never have rained before the flood. It might never have rained. And there they were, living their lives, indulging in what they wanted to indulge in, do what they wanted to do and then the pitter patter started and it continued and it went on and the waters came up and the waters came down and it continued until the entire world was underwater. judgment seems far off until it comes and for lot and we'll talk more about this next time salvation seems far off until it came, but God is always working and I, and, I, and I don't want to spoil next week's sermon, but do look um, at the phrase that is used um, in uh, verse nine to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. It's not that there, it, it's, it's not that there's no punishment that's been decreed. They're they're under punishment. The sentence has been passed. Long ago, remember verse 3, their condemnation from long ago. The, The sentence has been passed, it's just not been put into place yet. But it has been passed, and it will happen. And God's work will be done. Now, the background to all of this, let's go back to the book of Genesis, and let's talk through this whole procedure that he's taking us through here. In the book of Genesis, the the, uh, author of Genesis, Moses, as he puts together the book of Genesis in its current form, um, he walks us through a procedure that God does, whereby God investigates sin, looks at the sinful heart of man, and then exercises judgment following that investigation. You see that initially in the archetype of, of all of these principles in Genesis chapter 3, which is where Peter's already pointed us to. That when Adam and Eve have sinned, God comes to them and he confronts them, and he addresses the sin, and because he, they have sinned, he then issues judgment against them. And to Satan as well. Then in Genesis chapter 6, We come to the passage that we are going to be considering today in light of the verse in 2nd Peter. So if you would turn with me please to Genesis 6 and keep a finger or a ribbon or something in 2nd Peter. Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, God looks at the state of the world and then brings about the judgment of the flood. We're going to look at that right now. But just to complete the journey, in Genesis chapter 11, God investigates the sin of humanity before the judgment at Babel. And then in Genesis chapter 18, when God shows up to see Abram at the Oaks of Mamre, he investigates the state of Sodom and Gomorrah before bringing judgment down upon them. So let's look at Genesis 6 in this, because this is what Peter is referencing. Genesis chapter 6, when the, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they choose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, And they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh was sorry he'd made man on the earth and it grieved his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Now we're going to talk more about this when we come to chapter 3. But let me say for now, the anti world, the world prior to the flood, was totally different completely different. Like something out of a sci-fi movie. Like life was so completely different to life now that you wouldn't recognize it. It bears no comparison. Like I said it probably didn't rain. There was waters in the deep and there was a canopy above. The canopy above almost certainly created more of a tropical climate throughout the earth. That's why you see sort of tropical plants and what have you in fossilized form in places like the Arctic and the Antarctic there there would have been animals co inhabiting with humans without any conflict people didn't eat animals and animals didn't eat people people were eating the fruit as given to Adam and they continued as they were to fill the earth to reproduce the trees as they reproduced and they were going to continue to eat those things and life was a completely different world than we know it now and from the very beginning there were lots lots of children. It was the beginning of man and woman coming together and marriage and people multiply very quickly. When you look at the timelines of this it is astonishing. Adam is still alive when Methuselah is born. Methuselah dies as the flood begins and that's a picture of the the patience of God in that alone, that the man who lived the longest dies at the very moment that the flood begins, but that's for another story. And then Noah is saved through the flood and his son Shem with him, and Shem outlives Abram and Isaac and even Jacob. That these three people, their lifespans cover 2,000 years and so adam has children and adam's children have children and the grandchildren have children and the great grandchildren have children and they go on and they go on and they go on and the population becomes millions and adam is still hasn't hit middle age yet boy thanksgiving must have been crazy in their family i mean there's all sorts of implications here as well which i mustn't get distracted by but you know it's a case of Hey, how was the world created, Mum and and Dad? Can you tell me how the earth was created? Do you know what? Let's pop over to your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam and he can tell you what about it. This is how things were kept and remembered because of the huge lifespan of people. And so the world was completely different. And these people began to populate. But as we know from Cain and Abel, as soon as people in their sin began to become numerous. So sin became numerous as well. And what this verse in Genesis 6 verse 1 tells us is that when they began to multiply, when was that? That wasn't before the flood. That was thousands of years before the flood. That was immediately. People began to multiply. Boom, 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 boom. Like rabbits. People everywhere. And as soon as there's this explosion of people, there's an explosion of sin. And at that time... The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Sons of God in scripture always completely universally refers to angelic beings. This is very weird for people who haven't come across this before. When I first came across it, not only did I think it was very weird, I thought, but it doesn't really matter because it's just one obscure, isolated passage. Folks, this is not isolated. The entirety of the Flood is premised on this chapter of Scripture. The reason that the Flood happened is because of what's being explained here. That linkage is made clear. And what happens here is something that then is spoken of, is something that is referenced throughout Scripture. We will see the the spillover of what occurs in Genesis 6 we will see the effects of this in Deuteronomy, in Numbers, later in Genesis. We're seeing it here in Second Peter, which is why I'm talking about it. We saw it in First Peter. It's in Isaiah, it's in Proverbs, it's in Psalms. It's in, it's in all parts of the Bible. And it is actually something that is a major event in human history that has implications in both Old and New Testament, and is an astonishingly important piece of doctrine. It is not remote and neither is it obscure. And it is certainly not unimportant. But it is weird, I'll grant you that. What happened is, angelic beings that we know from scripture come to the earth and take the appearance of humans when they do so. We know from Genesis 18, Oaks of Mamre, that when God shows up in human form with a couple of angels, that they're able to eat. Presumably they have mouths and teeth and a digestive system of sorts. And there were angelic beings who came to earth and, slept in the euphemistic sense with the daughters of men they took the ones that they chose perhaps that implies took forcefully but more likely it implies that they had the pick of the bunch that because of their might and their power and who they were and their origin they were so desired now This is something that I I could talk about literally for about seven sermons as there's so much information on it, I have to give you a very brief potted history, but the reality is, is that this is something that was not disputed in the Jewish faith or in the Christian church for, for pretty much thousands of years. It was never an issue and it was only when the doctrine became weird and icky and strange that people tried to find other solutions which referencing back to our sermons in chapter one is why you shouldn't be looking for what the bible could mean but rather you want to know what the author intended to mean and at face value this is very clear angelic beings Yes, fallen angelic beings came from the heavenly realm, not heaven necessarily in the sense of with God, but the heavenly realm as in the unseen realm, as in not on earth. And they came and they looked down and they came and they basically reproduced with the daughters of men and the, pro- the production of that cohabiting, the offspring of their coupling was the Nephilim. Who were mighty men of old, men of renown, warriors, and the Nephilim are spoken of in Scripture again and again and again. And the Nephilim become connected to various tribes: the Amorites, the the Emim, the Zimzamzumites. Oh yes, they're there. It becomes associated with all of these various tribes, and most famously, the Rephaim and the Rephaim became so associated with the Nephilim that essentially, just like all copiers are known as xeroxes and all tissues are known as kleenexes, so the Rephaim became synonymous with the the Nephilim. And these creatures were giants that's why in the book of Numbers at Kadesh Barnea when they were supposed to go in and take the land from these various tribes that had Nephilim amongst them, they said they're giants and we're like grasshoppers and there were giant creatures on the earth. The Jews had an entire mythology about this, which may or may not be true, but it certainly reflects beliefs of that day. Most famously in the book of First Enoch, which is a, um, a non-biblical book of, of uh, the kind of Jewish second temple period, and he talks hugely about this and It's something that is shared by other religions and other cultures. And let me be clear, it is shared by people today outside of the Christian faith. There are groups today that talk about creatures from another realm coming to earth, cohabiting with women and sharing knowledge and and what have you. And, And because they use the term alien, we think they're all bonkers. And they may well be. But the concept, the concept is something that has been universal through through human culture, for all sorts of cultures throughout history, as are giants for that matter. And it might seem very, very strange to us, but it is something that is part of the biblical teaching. And the Nephilim, the Rephaim, they existed and they were in the land, because it says here that they were there at this time and also afterwards and also afterwards they were in the land verse 4 in those days and also afterwards so the flood wiped them out but they came back again afterwards how did they come back again afterwards? the same way they came in the first time why was it not so widespread afterwards? because they tried to do it again in Genesis chapter 11. That's what the Tower of Babel is about, and I haven't got time for that this morning, but suffice to say that the Tower of Babel is about recreating the Nephilim. And God confuses them with different languages, and from that point forwards, the Nephilim were limited by tribes. Rather than taking over the whole world, they became limited to various tribes and if a tribe had Nephilim in them they were a threat to your tribe and so tribes would wipe one another out because they didn't like to have Nephilim locally and therefore the problem became relatively self-contained and you see evidence of that in Genesis chapter 14. And the last of the Nephilim, the last of the Rephaim was the chap called Og who was king of Bashan. Long body, small name And he had a very large bed that was famous, but that's another story as well. But he was the last of them, but nonetheless there were still giants because if the Nephilim were to have offspring, then they're going to have Nephilim blood within them and then they're going to be larger creatures. And God says they need to all be wiped out. And for the record, if you've ever struggled with those who say there is genocide that is God ordained in the Bible, in every single one of those cases, you're dealing with tribes that have Nephilim blood within them. That God is keeping the world pure. And part of the reason for this, surely, is that just back in chapter 3, God said that the seed of a woman would be the one that would be the redeemer. Well, if there's not humans left because the Nephilim blood is going through them like wildfire, then that might be a problem. And some believe that at the time of Genesis 6, the problem was so widespread that Noah being declared to be righteous wasn't simply a declaration of the fact that he was a man who walked after the Lord, but that maybe he and his family were the only ones remaining who weren't contaminated by Nephilim blood. It's possible, certainly possible. The book of Enoch, which I've been reading again this week, which is really incredible stuff, but not biblical, but incredible, um, Talks about the fact that these, these giants were, were rulers, they were leaders, they were kings, they were also cannibals. And that the sons, and, and also that this is where the, they would eat animals and birds and fish, and they were the first to do so, that they actually brought that into society. Because remember, God didn't allow for it until after the flood. They were the first meat eaters. Remember that all you meat eaters who started it but also that the sons of God appealed to two people because they came with promises of knowledge and revelation just like in the garden in Genesis 3 and Jewish tradition teaches us again rightly or wrongly we don't know that that the angels the sons of God brought with them knowledge of metallurgy The making of metals and the making of weapons, the making of jewellery, cosmetology even, herbalism, and many of these kind of things were brought in, that knowledge was brought, because that's always what the enemy wanted, was to say to mankind, hey, come here, I can give you knowledge that no one else can give you, and I will stand back from making broad digs at the charismatic world but that is something that is going on today that so much false teaching still comes with a degree of Gnosticism a degree of here some secret knowledge that you can have that others don't have and so there's this whole background and what is fascinating is that in the book of Genesis we see the judgment coming against man but we doesn't have a clear declaration of the judgment against the angels themselves, but in First Enoch, in other apocryphal books like Jubilees and others, there is constant reference to the judgment of these angels, of these fallen angels. And Peter, in second Peter, and that's where we're going to go back to now, is making reference to that judgment. So it's fascinating to me that second peter is taking as truth and, this, and and while enoch is certainly not inspired i can promise you that second peter is and it speaks of the judgment of these angels but nonetheless it's nothing new because this concept goes further back so let's just read second peter verse 4 again it says that god did not spare the angels when they sinned so the angels Not the Nephilim who were drowned in the flood at the time. Not the Nephilim who were killed by those coming into the land, the the, the Israelites coming into the land centuries later. But the angels who came down from heaven to cohabit with those human women, that those angels were punished. And I want you to look at the punishment and look carefully. There's lots of details here. It says if God did not spare them, he did not spare them when they sinned. Literally, it's the ones having sinned. It's there are plenty of angels, but these are the ones that sinned. There were angels who particularly sinned, these are the ones being focused on. This is this is if you like pointing out specific angels. This is clearly the angels of Genesis six, as is clear from parallels in Judah and from how he continues. He says, he did not spare them, but it says here, but cast them into hell. Let me be clear about this. The word hell is not in the text here. It's not hell. Some versions might have the word Tartarus. And you can understand why many versions don't use the word Tartarus because if you hear the word Tartarus, you may be thinking about eating fish, Tartar sauce, rather than be thinking about fire and judgment. But Tartarus is a Greek word. In fact, it's not even the noun here, it's a verb, to cast into Tartarus. And Tartarus is almost certainly the equivalent of the Hebrew Abaddon, Abaddon rather, so I get my pronunciation. I always get the emphasis on the wrong, get the emphasis on the wrong syllable. It's, um, It's Abaddon. I always say Abaddon, but it's Abaddon. Um, Tartarus and Abaddon are the same place. And it is a place that is reserved for the Nephilim, the Rephaim, and presumably the angels that created them. And all of these creatures are placed in a place which is part of hell. Hades in the Greek, Sheol in the Hebrew, is part of hell but it is lower than hell it is it is like the it is the the bad part of hell it's the worst part it's the lowest part and you see the connection between abaddon and the rephaim the nephilim in uh, the book of uh, psalms uh, chapter 88 you see that also in the book of isaiah as well and in the book of job you see the connection being made and there is a place of hell that is reserved for them, that is lower than any other place, that is worse than any other place. It is, it is worse than regular Hades and regular Sheol. It is Tartarus, it is a badon. And so, this is the place that they are being cast into and they have been committed to something. Now, the the, the, word, um, the word committed here uh, is an interesting one. I mean, hand over or deliver uh, most, li- most literally. Um, and what are they committed to? And this is where we have a little bit of a problem. Some of your versions say chains and other of your versions say pits. And virtually every one of you, whether you have chains or pits, will have a footnote in your Bible saying, some versions say, and then it will have the other word. So if your version says chains, it will say some versions has pits, some Greek versions have pits, and if your version has pits, it will say some versions have chains. Okay? The reason here is that different Greek manuscripts have different words, and the difference between them is a single letter. It's it's no different verbally, than the difference between me saying water, and you Americans going, what, what? Water, what, water, what? I've had that conversation so many times, and I have to go, water, and ah, okay, water, all right. Now you understand. It's, It's a difference in the pronunciation of a vowel. That's it, that's it. Difference between lose and loose that kind of thing. And so which is it? It's a very difficult question and I could bore you with it for hours and it's a lot of fun but it's not for a sermon. But suffice to say my conclusion is simply this and I have looked at this long and hard is that it's almost certainly pits and not chains and the reason I think that they went with that chains became a reading, became a variant, that it got mistakenly put into chains, is because there is a parallel passage to this in the book of Jude, and in Jude six it says that they're put in chains. And I think they were put in chains. They were put in chains while they were in pits. And the pit that they're in is the pit called Tartarus. So I think they were in chains, because Jude tells us they were in chains, but if you're familiar with variations in the Gospel manuscripts, the scribes would often harmonize the Gospels. Well Luke said this, so. Presumably Mark says this, or Mark said this, or presumably Matthew says this. And so often the scribes would try, thinking there might have been an error, would try and harmonise between the various accounts. And it seems as if, I believe that Jude was written before Second Peter, and it seems as if that Second Peter is being harmonised to, to fit with Jude, thinking that that was the original reading. But I think that what Peter is actually doing here, and the reason I feel very strongly it's Pitts, And uh, those of you who come to evening services, this is where you can just shine your apple and feel very proud of yourselves. This is something that we've seen recently in Isaiah chapter 24. You don't need to turn there, I'm going to read to you very briefly. But on the day of the Lord, when God returns, when judgment has happened, he is going to come back. And on that day, it says in chapter 24 and verse 21, on that day, Yahweh will punish The hosts of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth. The word punish in Isaiah is not the usual word for punish. The word punish is a word that means to determine someone's fate. If if the determination of your fate is that God's going to bless you, then that's not a bad thing, that's not punishing but in this context it is a bad thing which is why most versions translate it as "punish." but the word doesn't inherently mean that it means to determine one's fate and so what's going to happen when the Lord returns on that day is that he will determine the fate of not just the heavenly host but of earthly kings in the unseen realm God will place judgment and in the realm of the seen on the earth God will make judgment too. And then verse 22, this judgment is expanded on and it says, They, who's the they? The hosts of heaven and the kings of the earth. The angels being judged and the humans being judged. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. In a pit. They will be shut up in a prison and after many days they will again be punished, have their fates determined. And so you see Christ returning, fates being determined of angelic beings and human beings, and then after many days, Revelation 20 tells us how many days, it's a thousand years, they are then set free, Satan is loosed and he is then judged again. His fate is then determined more permanently. And so for now, these ones are chained in a pit. And just as in a future day when God returns, there will be a multitude of angelic beings who will be cast into Tartarus. Do you remember when uh, uh, Jesus cast out demons from, from a man called Legion? They didn't want to be put in a certain place. I didn't want to go to Tartarus, that's where angelic beings, that's where Rephaim, that's where the angels and the offspring of angels who are judged are placed. They're placed in a special part of hell called Tartarus or a bagon and they are placed in judgment there and they are put in that pit. And I think that Peter is alluding to Isaiah 24, not because what Isaiah 24 is exactly what's being spoken of, but the same thing is being spoken of. Angels being judged, and angels being judged and put in a pit. So it's not as if Genesis 6 says humans are judged because of this travesty, this, this, this terrible sin and the angels aren't and then Peter suddenly comes along thousands of years later says actually I've got something completely new the angels are judged but rather Peter is saying we've always known from Isaiah that angels were judged and they go to a place or pit and this is where those angels are those angels who committed the sins of Genesis 6 are now in Tartarus awaiting their final judgment the day of the Lord, they're going to be joined by a whole bunch more. That's when Isaiah 24 will be fulfilled. But their judgment will come. They are in a pit. Even they were not excluded from judgment. Now, there's a whole bunch of information that you need to know. Because when we come up to verse sort 10-11, of we're going to need to have this whole angelic background in our heads. And also... We need to make sure we know this stuff because, as I said, it's significant. It goes throughout scripture and it's very important. You can't understand Psalm 88 without understanding the Rephaim. So, for one particular example. So there's all of this kind of information that's there. How does that then impact us as we understand Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 today? This is how it is. Listen. The angels are above human beings. We saw that in the book of Hebrews when we referenced the quotation there of Psalm 8 as well. And he is going to make that clear for us as well. Verse 11, if you look ahead briefly. Angels, though greater in might and power. And angels, angels are going to be judged. They are going to be judged. Those angels in the past... They were handed over, their fate was determined, like Isaiah, they were handed over into hell and they, despite their might, despite the power, despite the fact that they said, let's go down and take whatever women we like, despite the fact that they had the power to leave one realm and go to another, despite the fact that they were able to do astonishing things, that they had knowledge that humans didn't have, despite all of that, they still got judged. They thought they could do what they wanted. They thought that they could delight in what they wanted to do. They thought the judgment wasn't coming. There are false teachers today who are incredibly successful and incredibly powerful. So often, false teachers and those who teach things falsely are very important and very well-loved. They've trained their followers really well. If you speak out against their favourite false teacher, they'll quote to you what they've heard quoted to them, which is, don't touch the Lord's anointed. And there is this, this, this danger in speaking out because they're so highly regarded in so many circles. And let me just say this. God's judgment is absolutely certain of false teachers. I live with severe concern and fear of saying things wrong. Saying something from the pulpit. James, gosh, we're doing James after 2 Peter. James warns those who teach that they will be under much stricter judgment. God's judgment is so serious, folks. We don't want to be teaching things wrong, getting things wrong you know, saying things that God didn't say. We don't want to be saying, did God really say? We don't want to be fudging on doctrines. And and here's a doctrine coming up but the next couple of weeks that that people do fudge on. And that's the doctrine of hell and judgment. And and, and the the thing being taught here is, is very clearly this. These false teachers, that they have judgment and they have judgment coming. And if angels don't escape judgment then no human will. It's a Jewish argument from the lesser to the greater. You do not want to associate yourselves with those on whom fire is going to come. When Korah created a rebellion in Numbers 16 against Moses and against God, the earth opened up and swallowed him up and the 250 leaders who came along with him for the ride as they ran away fire came down from heaven and they were all destroyed them and their households and the only ones that survived were the sons of Korah who were there to sing stories of warning and to praise the one who redeemed them from Sheol judgment is real hell is real And it is reserved for those, especially those, who speak falsely, who teach false doctrine. It is reserved for those who, like these angels, have unnatural couplings. Jude makes that connection, we'll see that as we come to the book of Jude. And what we as believers need to understand is that we have a body that is dwelt with by sin. Praise God we're not condemned to live as slaves to that body. That God has given us his spirit and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But every hour that we live, our body cries, Oh! Sensuality! Oh! Greed! Can I have that? Can I do that? And we have to beat our bodies, and make it our slave. That the spirit has to rule in our minds. That we have to put our flesh to death daily. Because there is this desire for the things that look good, and that appeal and that makes sense to us and that we desire and false teachers come along and they appeal to all of those qualities within us and they are going to be judged and we do not want to have any association with the things that God has reserved for destruction and the message for today in this verse above all else Is that if angels do not escape, nobody escapes? Nobody escapes. Nobody is too powerful. No one is too mighty. Don't we understand that? Don't we understand the righteousness and the justice of that? Is not part of the reason that we rejoice that? that the whole Epstein thing is coming out and that Maxwell is in prison and we're hoping that she'll name the names and that all these horrific people will be exposed. Isn't half the reason that we that we are glad that that is coming out now? Isn't it because that these people thought that they would never get caught, they would never be done because they were too rich and too powerful and too big. But nobody gets to hide the secrets of their heart from God. And whether these secrets come out And I suspect that part of that greed for knowledge is part of our desire as well, so maybe we want to be careful on that. But but whether all this stuff comes out or not, you know that God will judge every one of them for their sins. And we rejoice in that. Because nobody escapes the hand of God. Nobody gets away from God's judgment. No one is too big. No one has too much power. Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm the greatest of all. I'm the great king. Bow before me. And God says, no, you bow before me. And he made him mad and he laid on the grass and he ate the grass like an oxen. Until he got up rejoicing in the might and the power and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Now I want us to be absolutely clear on this. And I know I'm going over and I know it's communion Sunday, but I want to finish. We are in a period of time when hatred for Christ and for his people is only going to continue to increase. They want to delight in the things that they want to touch and the things they want to do and the things they want to know and the things they want to have and we are the party poopers and they hate God and they will hate us that every single one of them will bow the knee before Jesus Christ and confess with their lips that he is Yahweh God and that their devotion should have been to him alone And that is coming. And we need to believe it and cling on to it. And we need to believe it if they put us in prison. And we need to believe it if they try to censor us. And we need to believe it if they try to silence us. And we need to believe it when they belittle us. And we need to believe it when they slander us. Because at the end of the day, God may allow us to be humbled. But when we confess his name on the last day, he will lift us up. And we will all, whether it is to our eternal glory or to our eternal shame, say that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we pray, Lord, that you would be merciful to those who teach and understand falsely. that you would save many out from that. I want to pray particularly this morning for the false teacher, Todd White, who's making claims of finally, for the first time, understanding the gospel and repenting. I pray that his salvation might be true, and I pray that he might lead many to you. I pray that you would bring people like Osteen and Copeland to salvation, Pray that those who've been seduced by the world will come to salvation and might come to rejoice in your long suffering. But nonetheless, Lord, we rejoice that your judgment is timely. And we see that your glory is revealed in your judging as much as in your saving may we not be ashamed of the clear biblical doctrines regarding judgment and though we might struggle and that we may not understand may we see your glory in bringing justice to this world but above all else we rejoice that you have sought to reconcile your love and mercy with your justice and you've made a way for us to be called children of God we deserve nothing but the fires of hell we deserve nothing more than those mighty angels we like them have stepped out of line have risen up against your authority we have been led astray by sensuality and greed but yet you loved us and you cast your merciful grace upon us you opened our eyes and you saved us by the blood of your son thank you father thank you for salvation from judgment Redemption from Sheol. Amen.